This is the NOAA Ocean Podcast. I'm Troy Kitch. Today we're going to talk about how the ocean moves. I was thinking I should call this episode everything you wanted to know about tides and currents, but we're afraid to ask. But I guess that would be overstating things just a bit. It's not everything you want to know, but you're going to hear a lot of things you didn't know about the ocean's tides and currents in this wide-ranging chat with NOAA oceanographer Greg Dusek. We sat down recently to talk about a bunch of different topics. High tide flooding, how the rotation of the earth, wind, and the shape of the land affects tides and currents, the Gulf Stream. There's a lot to take in here, and it was a lot of fun talking to Greg. We hope you enjoy this conversation. My name is Greg Dusek. I am a physical oceanographer and senior scientist with the National Ocean Service in the office of the Center for Operational Oceanographic Products and Surfaces, which is the Tides and Currents Office at NOAA. And I'm a physical oceanographer, so I study the motion of the ocean, how the, the ocean moves um, from things like waves and tides and currents. You know, when I tell people I'm an oceanographer, I think a lot of people assume oceanographers study the, the critters, the whales and the dolphins and, and things that live in the ocean. And I have to always explain to them, no, no, I'm a physical oceanographer. I study the physics, how the water moves. Do you get some blank stares when you say that? Yeah, yeah, usually. They're like, what's a physical oceanographer? I don't understand. Yes. <laughs> the motion of the ocean, I think that's the easiest way, to, easiest way to break it down. So let's start big picture, high tide flooding. What is it? And how do you know when it's going to happen? It's flooding that's, that's most frequent at high tide and most, most significant typically at high tide. A good example, so I'll give you an example of, of high tide flooding. I was at the boat show in Annapolis, Maryland, back in October. And we show up at the boat show, and there's water everywhere, water in the streets, probably about a foot of water in the streets for no apparent reason. There wasn't a storm. There was a little bit of wind, but nothing really significant. And people next to me were like, why is this water here? It didn't rain that much. I don't understand what's going on. People but it probably, was a, they yeah. probably expect you to have the answer. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, <laughs> they didn't know. I was just kind of listening in uh, curiously to see what people thought the reason was. But it was, a, it was a, one of the higher tides uh, that Annapolis saw. And there was some winds in Chesapeake Bay, which moved the water around. So it was a little bit higher than you normally would expect. And so that combined with the high tides to have just enough water level to start causing flooding. And I think the ground is a little bit saturated from some rain. And so, so that type of flooding where, you know, there's no storm, there's nothing obvious, but it's a high tide, and there might be some other effect moving the water to be a little bit higher than normal, and then we start seeing some kind of low-level flooding, water in the streets. That's typically what we think of as high tide flooding. And this is happening more and more now, right? Yeah, so... Uh, I think over the past, since like the 1960s, we've seen an increase in the number of high tide flooding days per year, um, up over 500% at most places, like between 500 and 1,000% since the 60s. So it's increasing rapidly. Back in the 20s, so we we have water level gauges across the U.S. that have been established since, you know, the early 1900s or even earlier in some cases. Mm -hmm. And so we have one in Charleston, South Carolina, that's been there since 1921, and in 1928, there was this, the Lake Okeechobee hurricane. It, was, caused, it was, um, was one of the more significant hurricanes in U.S. history. Uh, it was a Category 4 when it struck Florida. Thousands of people lost their lives. Uh, so it was a tragic hurricane. But by the time it made its way up to Charleston, it was still a Category 1. You know, the water from storm surge was, was pretty high, caused a little bit of flooding, had some, you know, damage to boats and to buildings near shore. And so we observed that water level with our gauge. And 
at the time, it was the highest recorded water level at that gauge from when it was installed in 1921 to 1934. So for a 14-year period, it was the highest observed water level. Fast forward to now, we exceed that water level like 10 times a year in Charleston. And just from high tides, uh, maybe a little bit of wind in high tides, and we're hitting the same water level that we used to see in a once-in-a-decade storm. So it's changing quite a bit uh, from sea level rise. And that's something that people are just going to get used, have to get used to happening more and more, right? Yeah, that's right. So going forward, you know, assuming even relatively low levels of sea level rise, uh, you know, for the range of projections that are possible, we're going to keep seeing more and more high tide flooding to the eventual point where it's in some places it could be happening almost daily. And how do you predict when that's going to happen? The only, the only good part that the fact that high tide flooding is caused by the tides is that the tides are very predictable. And so we have a, a good idea by using tide predictions of when the highest tides are over the course of a year. And we can look out several years into the future and know when we're going to have the highest tides. And so just knowing that and knowing you know, at what water level a place is going to start flooding we can get pretty close to knowing when we're going to see these high tide flooding days. But then we add into that uh, other effects of water level that are uh, predictable, uh, like the seasonal effects. So a good example would be, you know, as the water warms up, it expands, and so you get higher water levels. So typically in the late summer, early fall, we'll see higher water levels than in the early spring because the water's warmer. And that is very regular, so we're able to predict that and include that in our predictions. And there are several other seasonal type of things like that 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 change water level regularly. So we're able to account for that. So we combine those two things. We combine our information that we know about sea level rise, and we can get pretty close to knowing when we're likely to get water levels that are close to being flooding levels. Now, usually you need some other part to put it over the top. So you need a little bit of wind, maybe some other kind of forcing, weather forcing or something that typically is, is going to end up causing flooding. Uh, okay. But we're getting to the point where that's less and less needed. So places like Charleston, you get flooding uh, from the tide alone without any other forcing uh, sometimes. And that's going to be more common in more places. Okay. And is it mostly an East Coast thing or is this all over the place? Uh, high tide flooding happens everywhere. It's less common in places like, for instance, Alaska, where water levels are actually dropping relatively because the land is moving up there. So even with sea level rise, you're not, you're not getting increases in water levels in many places in Alaska. And so combine that with the topography, say there, like the steep topography. And so buildings are further away from the water, typically. So you typically might not see it in a place like that. And same thing with like around maybe Maine and up in the, the northeast where you have steep topography, it's not much of an, as much of an issue. But, but pretty much everywhere else in the U.S., even the Pacific Islands, you get some. Um, it, it's, it's a problem. And if it's not that much of a problem yet, it's going to be, you know, as, as we get continuing sea level rise, it's going to become more and more of one over the next decades. So you mentioned um, regional winds uh, as one of the factors that can change the flooding levels, high tide flooding. So could you explain a little bit more about how, how the winds play into this? I think it was two years ago. The water was like, it was like a record high water temperature in New Jersey. It was like 83 degrees or like mid 80s in yeah. August. And yeah. everyone's like, wow, this is great. The water is awesome. And then all of a sudden, two days later, it's 60 degrees. And everyone's like, what happened? It went from, <laughs> from being like bath water to now no one wants to go into the water. 
And so we had some questions about it. And basically what happened, the winds shifted. And then all of a sudden you were getting winds that were pushing the water offshore. And when that happens, you push water on the top layer, which is really warm, right? You have this warm top layer, which warmed up over the summer. That gets pushed offshore. And then you upwell or bring up this, this cold water from underneath. And all of a sudden your water temperature drops, you know, 20 degrees almost overnight. And, and that's all caused by Ekman transport, which is basically the idea of pushing water um, to the right of the wind. So you get winds out of the south, which most people wouldn't, you know, maybe south, southeast, which most people might think, oh, well, it's coming from the southeast. It's going to move warm water to me. Right. But actually what happens is the water wants to go to the right of the wind. And so that top layer of water gets pushed offshore. You actually get a decrease in water level near the coast when you have that. So you get this lower water level, but then you get this upwelling of cold water. Usually when I think of upwelling, I think of California right. on the West Coast. Right. So is it more, it's more prevalent on the West Coast? Yeah, yeah, because of the, the, just the directions of the winds there and the fact that you have no continental shelf, really, right? So you drop off oh, water right. depth really quick. So those really deep waters are very close to shore. And so you bring up this nutrient-rich, cold, deep, deeper water very quickly and close to shore when you're pushing that surface layer away from shore. On the East Coast, it's not as significant because you, you have such a broad continental shelf. So, you know, your, your water column isn't as stratified, typically. And, you, and so you don't have that really deep bottom water close to shore, but you still get those same kind of effects. Um, particularly you see it more in the summer months where you start, you know, really warming up that surface layer okay. and the water underneath is a little bit cold. So the context is, of course, that it's caused by the Earth's rotation. And so because of the Earth's rotation, because of the Coriolis effect, which a lot of people might remember, right, from back in, in school, hearing yeah. about, you know, you shoot, shoot a missile across the Earth and it wants to veer to the right in the northern hemisphere and to the left in the southern hemisphere. Right, and that's all caused by the Earth's rotation. And so that's really important for, for oceanography because the water, when you're moving water over large distances, it wants to go to the right. And so you tend to move it about, you know, depending on, on where you are, if you're along the coast, you tend to move it uh, 45 to 90 degrees from the direction of the wind stress when you have sustained winds over large distances. Okay. Um, and so that affects water level too because you're pushing water either away from shore, and so you have a little bit of a decrease in water level, or you're pushing water towards shore, and you have an increase in water level. If I'm teaching a class on ocean currents, especially like large-scale ocean currents, that's the first thing you got to talk about, though, is, is Coriolis and why it's important, because it's really, you know, the Earth's rotation is really what drives all of our large-scale ocean currents. That's why that's why those occur the way they do. It's because of the Earth's rotation. So Coriolis and, and that idea of water turning to the right is principle in, in all of physical oceanography. It's really important. Well, that's a good segue into talk, uh, to talking a little bit about the Gulf Stream mm -hmm. and how that affects sea level along the coast. So I think first just some background on the Gulf Stream probably, okay. right? Yeah. What so, is the Gulf Stream? Yeah, right. Because a lot of people probably don't know. They hear about it all the time, probably, right? But they don't really know what it is. So, so the Gulf Stream is a large, fast-moving ocean current. And it is really important for moving lots of warm water um, from near the equator up to the poles. And it's always there, or is it just sometimes there? Yeah, the Gulf Stream is always there. 
Um, it moves around a little bit, and it can speed up and slow down depending on conditions. Uh, but it's always present, and it transports a massive amount of water. And so what I would ask people to do is to, in their mind, think about all the rivers in the world, right? So the Amazon, uh, the Mississippi, all the big rivers you can think about, and think about all the water that is being put into the ocean by those big rivers. Add them all together, then multiply it by 50, and that's how much water the Gulf Stream transports wow. along the East Coast. So it is a massive amount of water that it's moving. And so it has a huge impact on the oceanography of the entire Atlantic Ocean. That's a lot of water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think one of the things that people don't know about the Gulf Stream is that the height of the water actually changes across the Gulf Stream. So if you think about mean sea level, some flat sea level surface, uh, across the Gulf Stream, you actually get an increase in, in height of sea level by about three or four feet. Um, mm. So it's a substantial increase in, in water level there, and that's in part driven because of the Earth's rotation, and then also because that water is moving so quickly. And, and, and so what can happen is if the Gulf Stream slows down or moves in certain ways, uh, the water that's kind of bulged as part of the stream can relax and actually push its way up against the coast. And so you can see, you know, when the Gulf Stream slows down, you can see increases in water level along the southeast coast by you know, several inches to, to maybe a foot. Um, and, and in some cases, it happens pretty regularly. So like in, the, in North Carolina and South Carolina and those regions, you get a regular increase in water level in the fall because the Gulf Stream tends to be a little bit slower during those time periods. And so uh, it's really important to coastal sea levels. And so understanding you know, when the Gulf Stream is going to slow down and how it moves um, is really an important area to study when we think about how coastal water levels are changing in time and potentially changing in the future if there's any, ever any long-term change in the way the stream moves. And is that a possibility that there's going to be a long-term change? So, some, so that's, that's an open question. Um, uh, some people, there's been some research that suggests that the Gulf Stream, you know, there's, some, there's kind of some longer period cycles in the Gulf Stream which are known over kind of tens of years and things like that. Uh, but there's some speculation that you could see a long-term trend uh, in decrease in Gulf Stream uh, transport, which would, of course, result in an increase in sea level along the coast more than what we see just from global sea level rise alone. So, so the, the jury's still out a little bit on exactly how that's happening. And if it's happening, we need more data, I think. But, but it's, it's a possibility um, that's been studied in the research. Okay, I see. And this is one of, I mean, there's major streams like this all over the world, right? Yeah, that's right. So the Gulf Stream is, is what we call a western boundary current, and okay. we call it that because it's along the western boundary of an ocean basin, in this case, the Atlantic Ocean, right? Mm -hmm. In the Pacific, we have a similar current along the coast of Japan called the Kuroshio Current. Um, there are also other western boundary currents, but basically along every western edge of large ocean basins, um, we have these, these fast-moving, large ocean currents. And that's mainly due to the rotation of the Earth. That's right, yeah. So the Earth's rotation effectively pushes the water over to that side uh, of, of the basin. And so you get this compressed, um, fast-moving water. In the case of the Gulf Stream, you know, the Gulf Stream is about 50, 60 miles wide in most places. Mm -hmm. And compare that to the other side of the basin where you have these broad, diffuse currents uh, which transport water south 
but they move much slower and they might be you know, thousands of miles wide. So you have this kind of opposite effect on both sides of the, of the Atlantic Ocean. Okay, top thing, number one thing. If there's one thing you want people to know when they walk away from this interview, what is going to be? <laughs> you don't want people to forget one yeah. thing. Uh, that's a good question. So I, I think th probably one of the most important things is to know that you know, we can predict how the water is moving in, in the coastal ocean uh, pretty well uh, you know, and relying on in what we know about the tides because that causes a lot of that motion. Um, and so just by understanding that, being able to predict that, uh, it's really important for, you know, things like coastal hazards, like high tide flooding. Uh, it's important for things like commerce and navigation. And so, you know, it really helps drive a lot of what happens along our nation's coasts is really just being able to predict on its most basic level what the tide is doing, what the tidal currents are doing. We're really good at it, and it's really important for a lot of different reasons. All right, what's the most fascinating thing about tides and currents that you'd want people to know? I think it's like super interesting that nobody knows. So I, I think one, one of the interesting things about currents and, and, and even tidal currents that people don't realize is that, one, they change with depth. So you can have really strong currents up at the surface where your boat is, and then down at the bottom, you know, tens of, tens of feet or more down, the currents can be quite a bit different. And the reason that they're different is a combination of, one, the friction from the bottom. So when water rubs up against the bottom, it slows down. So you typically have a little bit slower currents uh, towards the bottom of the water. But then you also get changes in, in water density uh, over the water column with depth. So you might have warm, fresher water towards the surface where your boat is, and down by the bottom you might have colder, saltier water. And those changes in density actually cause changes in the currents. And so the density of the water or, or the, the warmth and the, the saltiness of the water actually cause differences in how the water moves and, and differences in the currents, which I think is, is pretty interesting. It is, and it makes, me, it makes me really appreciate how complex of a system it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't really think about it, but geez, there's a lot going on. Yeah, no, it's ocean. incredibly complex. Yes, for sure. I, you know, you can simplify a lot of it and get decent results, but if you really want to understand what's going on, um, there's a lot of layers. There's a lot that goes into it. That was Greg Dusek, physical oceanographer in NOAA's Tides and Currents office. We hope you enjoyed the talk, and I can tell you we look forward to talking to Greg again in a future episode so we can dive into more topics about the physics of our ocean. This is the NOAA Ocean Podcast. Head to oceanservice.noaa.gov for show notes for this episode and to listen to all of our other episodes. You can subscribe to the podcast in your podcatcher of choice. And if you have a chance, leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us out to get more listeners. Till next time.